Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Down the Pub. Uh, we're all in the Mary Rose this wet and miserable evening. Uh, we have actually just figured out why the weather has turned. Emma, yeah. make your confession. It's all your fault, isn't it? It is all my fault. It's because I bought a um, reconditioned church pew in for my garden so I could sit in the sunshine after not having anything to sit on. And it was so beautiful. And then it arrived and it immediately started raining. So it's all my fault, um, and I apologise to everybody. I should do my confession as well. So I have been drinking probably double what I usually drink on a daily basis and blaming the weather and going, oh, but it's really <laughs> sunny. So you have to have a gin and tonic when it's warm outside and you're sitting in the garden, uh, and now the weather's shit, and I, I drank the same today because and I used <laughs> the weather as an excuse. Well, it's miserable out. I needed a gin and tonic to make me feel better. Anybody else want to make any corona confessions while we're at it? Holmes, how many bags of pork scratchings have you got through this week? Well, um, not as many, because it, it was a sort of deluxe card this week, so I only had 12 on. So I think we've had seven, I think. Anyone else? Clive? I'm just staggered by someone eating seven packets of pork scratching. There are three of us. It's not just for me. And as a, oh. as a, as a, as a, I mean, I am northern, but I'm not that northern. I have been down here for about 20 years. Um, we got scampi fries going up tomorrow, which is a lockdown first for this house. <laughs> oh, the things that make you excited now in life. Anyone else got any Corona confessions? Oh, just mm. everything junk food. Um, really? Are you one of the fridge raiders, Beth? I am, yeah. And and snacks. Like I'm a really big snack person. I love my snacks. Um, and I have like we have some shelves built in under our downstairs, which were meant to be for shoes, which I have commandeered for food and alcohol instead. Uh, and like I had things in there that I bought from like abroad and stuff and I had in there there's a type of like Jaffa cake that you can get in France which is raspberry flavour yeah orange and I had about eight boxes um I think I've got two left maybe and they're the good (laughs) boxes as well like the double packs so yeah I'm I'm sad because I can't go and get any more of them either so oh (laughs) so well I'm just about to send some double deckers and minstrels to France and maybe I can demand some of them coming the other way that would be the best thing ever (laughs) just to say though you haven't gained a pound despite all of the Jaffa cake quaffing which is not fair because I feel like every time I go to the fridge door I gain weight even if I don't touch anything inside (laughs) Andy how's your week been he's shaking his head (laughs) 
No, I've just been back and forth with my supervisor a lot, but uh, it's all good now. Yeah, you, got, so you haven't. Uh, you've left Austria alone tonight, haven't you? Uh, yeah, I'm back on home turf. Brilliant, cool. Okay, well, let's get started. Um, <clears throat> we have more people dropping in throughout the day. James is here as well. Barfly James. Hey, James. Hey, yeah, Alex. Kate's joining us from Spain again. Hello. Clive's really excited because Johnny's not here tonight. He's got I'm a mouthful of food now, and he's too polite to uh, <laughs> speak with his mouthful. You nearly made Clive check on his guinea fowl then. <laughs> what is, is for dinner, Clive? Clive? Is Clive the, Clive the other judge tonight? Then? Clive can be another judge tonight. He has got a case to make as well. Would you like to, to judge? Make, maybe if I'm a judge as well, I can help. I could win for one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Clive can be your co-judge as well. Then uh, I like that in all the shithousery that goes on in this pub. Um, we insist on having legal professionals as judges. <laughs> Although, do you know what, Holmes? I tried to surprise you. I did see if Pete Brown wanted to be your co-judge tonight. He was like, oh, damn it, I've agreed to another Zoom call. But next time. Uh, maybe next time. Yeah. I mean, I'm slightly worried about due process if Clive is making a case and being judged. But um, I think we can live with that as a one-off. Seems fine to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Okay. Uh, let's, well, let's start with Clive then. Um, because then he can just put his to bed and, and put on his judgy hat. Okay. Oh, so I didn't say what we're doing, did I? We're doing no. today the stupidest... Uh, quick, have another mouthful of dinner, Clive. Mm. We're doing the stupidest assassination attempts in history, um, partly because one or two of these came up in another chat we were having, and we were like, we should just put all these together and, and again, just cackle at everyone's misfortune in history. Um, so, Clive, go ahead. Whose assassination have you picked? Okay. It's not an assassination. It's a failed assassination. Yeah, we but did say that that's okay. It doesn't matter yep. if, if it's successful or not. But what's spectacular about this one is that every single aspect of it was an unmitigated disaster. Its conception was flawed. It was wrong. He should never have attempted it. The planning, insofar as there was any planning, was flawed and wrong. Execution got completely screwed up. And all the follow-through went disastrously wrong as well. There cannot be another assassination attempt that failed quite so solidly and completely. I'm talking here about the attempt by Alexander Berkman on the life of Henry Clay Frick. Now, you might have come across Frick because you've been to New York and you've seen the Frick collection housed in a wonderful mansion. Frick was a very, very wealthy man at the end of the last century in America. He set up a Coke business, which became the biggest coal and Coke business in America. He merged it with Carnegie's, Carnegie Steelworks because the Coke was very useful to Carnegie. And between them, they set up US Steel. They were both fabulously wealthy. I mean, they were fabulously wealthy to the extent that three years before the assassination attempt, a lake that they had created using, by damming a stream for purposes of fishing and hunting, collapsed and 2,200 people were drowned as a consequence. So they were kind of rich people who didn't have to worry about the consequences of their actions. Kind of like Dominic Cummings. A bit like that, yeah. <laughs> um, Alexander Berkman, on the other hand, was a young Jewish boy born in Vilnius in the Baltics, moved as a child to St. Petersburg. One of his uncles was 
executed for being one of the Decemberists. And at the age of 15, he was obliged to flee Russia because he was a nihilist and not a welcome person in Russia. And he made a massive mistake and went to New York. And in New York, he met up with people like Emma Goldman and other anarchists and became fervently involved with the anarchist movement. Five years later, he hit upon Mr. Frick. What had happened was a strike broke out in the Carnegie, the Homestead strike broke out in the Carnegie Steelworks in Pittsburgh. And it was a really nasty strike. The strikers managed to lock management out of the steelworks. Frick sent the Pinkertons in and they shot nine of the strikers. Eventually, the state militia went in with 8,000 troops and managed to stop the strike. But Frick, but, sorry, but Berkman had been reading about this and got very, very angry. Being a good anarchist, he thought the thing to do wasn't to go and write a pamphlet or have a demonstration. No, no, no. It had to be propaganda by deed. And so he hopped on the train to Pittsburgh and cunningly disguised himself as an employment agent, a recruit, recruiting consultant, as we'd call them today. You can imagine if you're going to do an anarchist killing, disguising yourself as a recruiter is just the way to go. Because no one wants to pay any attention to them, do they? No. So he <laughs> went round to Frick's office, knocked on the door, and Frick's secretary said, how can I help you? And he said, I've come to see Mr. Frick. I'm an employment consultant. And the secretary said, do you have an appointment? And he said, no. And she said, go away. And so he went away. And two days later, he came back. And this time, when the secretary went in to say, is that recruiter again? Berkman <laughs> forced his way into the room, pulled out a pistol and shot twice before being pushed onto the ground. There was a struggle. He stabbed wildly with a knife he had taken in and stabbed Frick four times before he was overpowered. A carpenter came into the room and bashed him on the head with a hammer. They, someone was, when the police arrived, they were going to shoot him, but Frick said, no, let the law deal with him. And he was dragged away to the police station where he tried to bite on a dynamite capsule. And it had been his plan to bite on this capsule and blow his own head off after killing Frick to make a real impact. But even that failed. And he was taken away and put in jail. Frick recovered and was back at work within a week. Berkman was locked up for two months before trial. During that time, he met one of the strikers who had been in prison for his part in the strike. And the striker told him that he had no connection whatsoever with Homestead, with the plant. The strike was none of his business and he'd only hurt the workers' cause by his action. And indeed he did. Because after this, the press gave huge amounts of sympathy to Frick. The strike collapsed completely. Two and a half thousand workers lost their jobs and those who kept their jobs were cut down to half pay. He That's went a bit on, like Virgin Atlantic now. It is a bit like that. And he then went on trial and refused all offers of pro bono legal representation. And believe you me, if a lawyer offers to act for you for free, take it. But he refused every offer like that and decided to represent himself. The way he was going to represent himself was firstly to deny the authority of the court to try him, which is always a good move. And the second thing he did was to write out a two hour long speech in German. This was a bad move in Pittsburgh. 
Pittsburgh in those days wasn't quite the Pittsburgh of flash dance. It was a grim industrial place. <laughs> and he started out making his two hour long speech through an, in German when he was Russian, but hey, he, making the speech through a translator and the translator kept making mistakes. So it dragged on and on. And after an hour, the judge said, enough of this, closed it down, sent the jury out, got the jury back. And he sentenced him, not once, but he sentenced him on four different counts to run consecutively, not concurrently, which therefore multiplied his time inside by about four. And he was sentenced to 21 years in prison. The Howard League for Penal Reform had never been to Pittsburgh and the prison was a really nasty place. He spent 14 years there, many of those years in solitary confinement. Uh, various other anarchists tried to dig a tunnel from outside the prison into the prison to get him out. But some child who was playing suddenly discovered this tunnel and that was exposed. And he didn't get out for many, many years. When he eventually got out, he got involved in another assassination attempt, uh, this time on John D. Rockefeller Jr.'s life. That failed, but he wasn't, he luckily for him wasn't connected with it. He then organized, and this is the First World War reference. Andrew, I hope you're paying attention, because I've been told <laughs> if I put one of those in, plus a Star Wars one, which I'm still searching for, I'm in with a crack. <laughs> he then organized anti-conscription demonstrations, was put in prison for that, released in 1919. And then, because he had failed by oversight to apply for US citizenship, he was deported at the end of his sentence in 1919 to Russia which wasn't a very good move for an anarchist because although he was welcomed with open arms by Lenin and the lads when he first got there, he soon realized what Bolshevism was about and traveled around the country, met up with the great Nestor Machnow in the Ukraine, and, but eventually left Russia because he couldn't take the Bolsheviks any longer and went to France. But in 1936, he fell very ill and decided he couldn't take the pain any longer and shot himself. Unfortunately, being an inept person, he managed to miss any vital <laughs> organs and he died in <laughs> agony slowly a few days later. He, the real sadness of Alexander Berkman's life was that he was a man of words, not deeds. Propaganda of the deed was really not something made for him. He wrote three really important books, Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist, The Bolshevik Myth, and The ABC of Communist Anarchism. Three books which really are worth reading. But he should never have done any of the doing. Writing was his thing. The attempt on Frick's life was an unmitigated disaster from beginning to end. It wasn't simply a badly carried out plot. It was just a badly done thing in its entirety. And for that reason, I would strongly recommend that we give an award to Alexander Berkman for his ineptitude. I was going to say, the most unfortunate thing about his life to me seems to be his aim. Um, but Holmes, have you got any questions? <laughs> I was going to say, I mean, did he actually manage to shoot anything effectively, whether it was a can off a wall or anything like that? I'm not sure that he did. He really wasn't cut out for it. If you see pictures of him, he just looks like a nice middle-aged bank clerk or something. He doesn't look like a kind of fiery revolutionary. 
And then also, I was slightly intrigued about the whole dynamite thing. How, how is that? I understand I'm not sure. I've, I've read about that in a few places, and I can't work out quite how you bite on a dynamite capsule and blow your head off. But the police managed to, he was chomping on it, and the police pulled it out of his mouth. And then, it, is he just chewing on a stick of dynamite? Because that would be more. No, no, not a whole stick. It was a specially constructed capsule that was meant to. A bit like that film Scanners. Well, you'd need. So to set the dynamite off, you need the flame, don't you? So I don't I know. know that there might have been do. some percussion cap by that time or something. I, I, I don't. Well, do you just hold a lighter near your mouth or. Or have a cigar? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it in the wrong way around. Oh. And then, did he feel that strongly, the strike that set him off? Was that just a coincidental thing? So if there'd been another, a similar strike elsewhere, would have that had the same effect? I think, he, I think he was particularly offended by that one. But one, one thing that came across very clearly in his book, Prison Memoirs of an Anarchist, is his total misconception of America. Workers in America who went on strike were striking to advantage themselves and their kids. These were people from immigrant stock, many of them immigrants directly, who'd gone off to America to build a better life. They didn't have the same concept of solidarity that European anarchists and communists had at that time. I like the way as well, his sort of disguise to gain access to the factory was that, you know, what's worse than a murderer? I know, a recruitment consultant. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's making me look at recruiters in an entirely different light now. So I'm guessing he just went for massive amounts of hair gel and a cheap suit and an obnoxious skinny tie. Yeah, I imagine as well, at least some murderers would get back to you after they've made you go for an interview <laughs> on a job on the other side of town that you didn't want to go to and you're only attending for morale in the first place. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, okay. for me, that was any job interview I was ever sent up to anywhere on Pearly Way as a teenager. Right, he thanks. Was... <laughs> Go on. No, I was going to say, he was really fascinating and rubbish, so thanks for that, Clive. Thank you. Yeah, I like that. was a really good start. Right, so Clive, now you can be a judge. Um, and who should we put in front of you first? Let's put Beth in front of you. Um, I really like Beth's one. We're going somewhere completely different now for this one. So Beth last joined us. Beth is, of course, a historian and battlefield guide. And she last joined us for our battles uh, debate where she did the Battle of the Somme. She's the reason I haven't yet recorded Saturday's show about the Battle of the Somme because I don't think I'm going to be able to do it as well as she did in a 10-minute rundown. Uh, so Beth, go ahead. Whose assassination have you chosen? Well, thank you, Alex. Um, right, well, I've chosen the assassination. There was many I could have chosen from, and Alex can attest to how many um, messages I sent her about this. <laughs> I had about four different ones on the go at one point. Um, but I finally settled on this afternoon the assassination of uh, Luis Carrero Blanco, um, who was the Spanish Prime Minister um, in the 1970s, second to uh, Franco, obviously, as we all know, we don't need to really go into who Franco is. Um, but uh, Blanco was considered to be not just a very strong ally of Franco, but also his successor, um, who was being groomed to take over for Franco when the inevitable day came that he was no longer in charge. Um, and this was gathering pace in Spain, um, and it was becoming well known that he was going to be the successor. So a group called the ETA, who are a group of Basque separatists, decided that they were going to take him out um, to prevent him becoming Franco's successor. Um, starts off with the, it's a successful assassination, as I'll get to the end, but it's every single step along the way takes five months preparation. Every single step, something goes wrong. Um, 
they start off by giving it a code name. It's Operation Ogre, which I think is a fantastic name. Um, and a group of four of the of the group, the ETA group, they're not just any members of the group. They're their commandos, so they're proper hardcore soldiers ready to do any tasks set their way, although it becomes apparent this particular group aren't particularly that great at missions that they were set, but hey-ho. Um, what they did was they reconnoitered a lot of the things that Blanco did on a day-to-day -day basis and they decided the best thing to do was to target him whilst he was doing quite a regular activity. They were going to target him when he was on his way to mass. Now they decided to do this, could have done it anywhere, they could have you know, shot him, a bomb. They decided they were going to blow him up. What they did was they posed these big rough and ready Basque commandos um, disguised themselves as students of art, students of sculpture. And they hired, um, well, hired, they rented, sorry, um, a basement apartment on one of the roads in which Blanco's car would drive down to get to the church for mass. So they rented this apartment and they decided they were going to dig a tunnel and blow him up from underneath under the road as the car was driving past. So what they did was that they started to dig from the basement underneath the road. The whole process took them about five months. Started going off wrong right from the beginning. None of them had any experience at all with any type of tunneling, digging, being underground. They were commandos. They were fighters. They had no, no clue whatsoever. So they started to do their digging. First thing that went wrong the pickaxes that they had purchased to help them do this digging were too big for the tunnel in which they were digging. So they couldn't swing the pickaxes with enough force to get through the rock and the debris that they needed to, to make this tunnel. One of the group then realized just as they were digging this tunnel that he was actually claustrophobic. So could not help them in the digging <laughs> of this tunnel. That old chestnut. He removed himself. <laughs> From this situation, he was like, oh, he then took up various other work, you know, getting other equipment and supplies. But he stayed away from the digging of the tunnel. Once they then did that and they were getting their way through, they hadn't dug to a right depth and they weren't preparing the structure correctly. So the tunnel kept collapsing and caving in on them and burying them alive. <laughs> it also, the soil was being contaminated because they were near to the sewage system, so it was being contaminated with leaking sewage and noxious gases, which was making them seriously ill, which is why it took them so long to dig this tunnel. It took them five months to dig this tunnel. <laughs> so it was making them ill, and they had to keep stopping. Um, eventually, they did manage to get the way through. Someone finally had the bright idea to buy a book that told them actually how to dig tunnels and what they needed to do. So they were putting up the props, making sure that the tunnel was... Um, not going to collapse on them. And they managed to actually finally get to uh, where they needed to be. On the 20th of December, 1973, um, that is the day that they blew up the explosives and took Blanco with it in his car. Um, they'd placed 80 kilograms of explosives in into the end of the tunnel, blew it up as the car um, went, went over quite a um, spectacular explosion. The force of the explosion sent Blanco and his car and his driver 
up over a five-story building where the car then landed on a second-story terrace. Um, the, the ETA members as well, there was only three of them who'd set the explosives, probably the three who did the digging, because I would not want someone who chickened out at the beginning to take all the fun <laughs> of that. Yeah. Um, they, they hung around for a bit. They had disguised <laughs> themselves as electricians. Um, so another disguise here, the electricians, they've got a broad range of disguises here. Um, but they, they hung around for a bit and then tried to pass it off as a gas explosion, telling people to run, get out the way, go. And, um, and they eventually slipped off into, into, the, into the unknown and it did work. You know, Blanco was, was killed. Um, so the assassination in and of itself was successful. Um, but uh, their, their means and their methods were certainly very, uh, very dubious, I would have to say. <laughs> Just uh, say right at the beginning that Franco and Blanco sounds like a kid's TV cartoon with two little mice wearing clothes. That's Something <laughs> theme song. Yeah, I'm thinking like Pinky and the Brain kind of thing going on. Um, oh my God. Uh, so many, so many uh, points to pick up on. Holmes. The first one is that why do they need to dress up as art students? <laughs> How do you dress up as an art student? I couldn't find anywhere. That, specifically, there were students of sculpture as well. And I'd like to think, you know, these Basque separatists, these commandos, they're going to be rough and ready hard men, you know. And it's like, how are they going to pass themselves off? You know, they're going to be, you have to be quite, I don't know, educated. To or run out and find a... some skinny jeans and yeah. dust each other with some chalk. Well, also, I, I wasn't very good at art and gave it up at quite a young age, but is sculpting slightly more manly than, say, watercolours? So. Kate, you live in Spain. Can you explain what a Spanish sculpture student looks like? Um... Being as you've just said that you think Wiley Coyote came up with his assassination plan. Um, I can't. I couldn't tell you. All the Spanish people look the same. <laughs> all the men wear skinny jeans, all of them, regardless, um, and white t-shirts. And when they're not wearing skinny jeans and white t-shirts, they wear all white, all white in the summer to go to a party. Um, the men and the women, they just wear all white. Um, oh, so that would have been a much easier disguise, wouldn't it? It might, it might, it might have got a bit mucky in the tunnel, I'd have thought. Yeah. Well, maybe that's why they dressed up as sculpture students, because it was the only way that they could disguise all the dust and stuff. Yeah, they could look dirty. Spanish people never look dirty. They're immaculate. They're always beautifully turned out. And also, I was intrigued by the fact that they got this self-help book, which was... Um, <laughs> Is there a specific one about digging? Hang on, hang on, there must be a book on this. <laughs> Straight on Amazon, how yeah. to dig a tunnel. <laughs> digging, digging tunnels in shit for assassination purposes. Brilliant, two in stock. Yeah. But why did they pretend to be electricians? Wouldn't it be better to be gas workers if they're claiming there's a gas explosion? <laughs> I don't think the brain processes were there completely. But they had five months to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> and yet somehow they're successful. I, I, I kind of just wonder if they thought, you know, because I'm guessing it would have been a Sunday, you know, the Friday night, the Saturday night before thinking, hang on, we need to make sure that no one recognises who we are and they just got whatever they could, which then results in the gas, the gas engineers. There's another question, though, that really puzzles me about this is, they spent five months doing this. They killed him. They got away with it. They went off. 
why did they tell anybody what they had done and how inept they were about doing it? Surely you just go, yeah, it was a crime of unique that? precision and awesomeness with no fuck-ups along the way. Yeah, it worked. I don't need to tell you any more about that. Yeah. <laughs> Took a bit of patience, but we got there. Oh, Bellens, all three of them. Holmes. Did they get caught? No, the, the ETA did take um, responsibility for it in the January afterwards. But um, I was I'm quite uh, amazed to find out whilst I was getting all of this together that, you know, obviously Franco and the, the government were quite outraged by what had gone on. But most people, the opposition, um, even the wider international community were just a bit like, eh, no one really cares. <laughs> but even, I read somewhere that um, one... The professor somewhere in America said that a lot of contemporaries even considered that the ETA had actually done a pretty good thing. Like, you know. Oh, wow. I did, you know that scene in the in the TV drums where people die and then they're floating above their own body before they go into the light? Can you imagine if you're this guy and you're thinking, I can't believe these three idiots have taken me out? If there, It's one thing. It's a slap in the face enough being assassinated. But being assassinated by these twats really is yeah. taking the piss. Yeah, there was a quote I read as well. It said that some people considered the assassination of him, of Carrero, to be the only thing that the ETA has ever done to further the cause of Spanish democracy. Absolutely. <laughs> but, isn't, isn't, but isn't that likely to be the case? Because by killing him, it deprived Franco of a natural successor. And therefore, after Franco's death, Spain was able to move into democracy. Whereas if Blanca had survived, it might not. Well, yeah, who knows? So it might might actually be in a good thing, despite all the hilarity on the way. Yeah, yeah, um, completely. I think that's quite, quite, quite valid. But it, the hilarity of it is just too. That's too brilliant. Fun. That's a really good one. I hadn't heard that. It's awesome. Thanks very much, Beth. That one's legendary. Uh, I reckon that's definitely up there as a contender already. Let's go to Kate. Who did you go for in the end, Kate? I went for the Chinese dude um, whose name I can't pronounce. That so as long as we get some laughs out of it. I apologise in advance to mm-hmm. anybody Chinese or Chinese speaking who's listening. Um, I will do my best. So in 200 and something BC, there was a guy called Jianli who was the lutenist for Qin Shi Huang, the emperor. So Qin Shi Huang was uh, king of Qin and then emperor of all China after he took it over in 221 BC. He was pretty unpopular and unsurprisingly there was an attempt on his life which failed. He ordered the uh, assassin and all his known accomplices to be hunted down and executed. One of whom was Jian Li who changed his name, went underground, got a job in a wine shop um, and lived a quiet life for a little while until he heard the owner's guests playing the lute um, and he made some rude comments about how rubbish they were so the owner sort of basically said well why don't you play then go on and uh, it turned out that he was pretty good he was kind of like Eric Clapton Jimi Hendrix of his day Um, word spread of the story and Emperor Huang heard and decided that he wanted to hear him so summoned him to the palace to play Somebody recognised Yan Li and told the emperor who he was. Um, but Huang was so moved by the performance that he pardoned him. However, not before he had his eyes gouged out as a punishment. Um, 
so Huang, the emperor of China, keeps inviting Jian Li to play, and they become more and more trusting until he can come to the palace and play, sitting very close to the emperor without a guard. So he's escaped execution for connection to a previous assassination, assassination attempt. He's gained trust of the most important and powerful man in China. So what does Jian Li decide to do? He decides to attempt another assassination. He's going to kill the emperor using his lute. So his weapon of choice is a small guitar and he's blind. He doesn't worry about this. He's very confident that he's going to be successful. And he goes ahead with the plan. But he decides that the lute needs to be a bit heavier. It's probably not sturdy enough to, to kill a man. So he puts um, blocks of lead inside the lute, pieces of lead inside the lute to make it heavier. Then goes to the palace to play one day and swings his lute at where he thinks the emperor's head might be. It's no surprise he misses and then is quickly executed. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> this is why people laugh at musicians. Um, Clive, any questions? Couldn't he have used his plectrum? <laughs> <laughs> He'd probably have been equally successful if he had. I just like the idea of him being a Jimi Hendrix on the lute. But did, would also, wouldn't lead into, I don't, I'm not a musician by any stretch, but wouldn't lead inside a lute change the tone of it and the pitch of it? I've no idea. I, I, I'm, I attempt to be a musician very poorly, um, but I don't even begin to play the guitar ever. In fairness, so. being blind might have an impact on that as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm sure lead isn't like, it's like he's trying to use it as kryptonite. I think he just wanted to make it a bit heavier. Um, uh, how did he get the lead inside the loot? Well, I, I, I don't really know, um, because I spent about half an hour reading up on the <laughs> <Yeah>. story. <laughs> yeah. Not being a f uh, proficient loot player. Um, yeah. I, I think, I mean, I, presumably he managed to live a fairly uh, relatively normal life after the Emperor gouged out his eye. Um, <laughs> All things considered, maybe he had like you know some sort of helper type people, you know, some servants or something. No, <laughs> no, he, he was. He was um, good. What are the he chances that there were twenty-five members of the imperial court lined up, pointing and laughing really quietly while he was trying to get the lead inside the loot? <laughs> maybe, maybe we judged him. Maybe he thought he was restringing it when he was filling it with lead. <laughs> He's been innocent all along. Yeah. Uh, I, like, I like the idea of him swinging his guitar like some sort of uh, Axel Rose or something and just completely missing and the Emperor just stepping to the side, like a wreck. Yeah, because yeah, he's going to see him coming, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I was quite glad when you said that he missed, actually, because if he killed him second time round, I was about to think this is bollocks. It just sounds like some sort of story that's been like, invented for moral reasons. But the fact that he missed... <laughs> Suggests that there may actually be something in this. Yeah. <laughs> also, isn't swinging the lead a kind of slang, fr slang expression? Yes. Yeah, uh, if you're pretending to be it? ill, yeah. Yeah. Mate, is that where it comes from? Because otherwise, uh, swinging the lead would just mean being a dick, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, it's dear. sort of. It's, I always thought it meant sort of taking a piss, which in a way he was. I just, I love this already. We've only had three. We've gone across the globe and it turns out people are as stupid as this everywhere, which I love. Let's see if people are as stupid as this. Are we picking on France again, James? 
<laughs> we are we it, it really wouldn't, are wouldn't be an installment of down the pub now if we weren't laughing at a louis would it <clears throat> yeah that's true so i've gone with the assassination of king louis philippe the last king of france so let's start with the assassins and the conspirators so we've got giuseppe mario fieschi pierre moray and theodore pepin uh fieschi was a former soldier revolutionary soldier and he seems to have been in prison for crimes of forgery and all sorts of things he hit, he met pierre moray who was a republican or used to be a republican but for some reason he was involved in bringing king louis philippe to power and he's this old guy like 61 and saddler so he's and a final... shit, shit Republican then if he's, got, <laughs> if he's putting Louis Philippe on the throne. Yeah, and then we have Theodore Pepin, who was part of the Society of the Rights of Man. Now, we don't know why they decided to king, kill King Louis, possibly Republican reasons, but it's never made clear. It just seems like that they just decide to kill the king. Now, how they decide to kill the king, they decide to build a weapon. And not just any weapon, they decide to go big or go home. It cost about 2,000 euros to 3,000 euros in today's money. And it was split between two of them. And then Fieschi was meant to build the weapon, that sort of thing. So it was a volley gun consisted of 25 gun barrels on a wooden frame, all side by side. So I guess there was thinking... Well, the more guns, the less chance uh, the king has of escaping. So, something like that. Um, and they could all be fired at the same time. They decided to build it in an apartment that Fieschi was renting out on a route because they were going to kill the king on a parade. So, they spent quite a while building this. They had a load of drama, which I can't seem to find what was the problem, but it just seemed to be incompetency after incompetency. And they decided to call it the Machine Infernal. And it is actually in a museum. And there's another replica in another museum. So Fieschi loaded each barrel with 3.5 to 4 inches of gunpowder, 6 to 8 balls, 2 layers of wadding. <laughs> John shaking his head like, slugs. oh my god. <laughs> yes, in each barrel. This is sort of Looney Tunes level like not Wiley Coyote, but more Elmer Fudd with Elmer the amount Fudd. of gunpowder he puts in the blunderbuss. <laughs> yeah, this is slightly so, like, if it doesn't blow the apartment sky high, they're going to be lucky. <laughs> yeah, all touch holes were next to one another, except one which didn't have a touch hole, and then one which he seems to have built the wrong way around facing him. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so all the gunpowder was on a line and he had to use a single fuse. For some reason, he decided to use charcoal. So the parade happens. It was a parade celebrating the revolution which brought King Louis Philippe to power. So there was the king. There was his three sons as well. There was all the military staff that passed underneath Fieschi. And Fieschi fired. 400 projectiles fly towards the king and his parade. And obviously you think, well, the king's doomed. Yeah, you were wrong. It missed the king and his family completely, except for a slight graze on the king. It killed 18 people, including one marshal and two generals, and wounded a further 22. 
Meanwhile, in the apartment, four barrels misfired, four exploded, one fired into him, and obviously you've got the blowback as well. So he's got severe wounds to his head, face, hands. He tried to flee, but he was caught by his blood trail. He didn't decide to clean himself up, so he's so running away as fast the trail as he of can. Blood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so he then tries to give a false name, but he's recognised by someone. And then the king decides he wanted him healed. He didn't want to kill him there, and then he wanted him healed and everything. So for some reason, Fieschi thinks, oh, the king wants to be my friend. So he goes on trial, and he's represented by some decent lawyers for the time, two Parisian, one Corsican, quite well-known lawyers for the time. I can't remember their names, can't pronounce them for the life of me. But So he decides to name all his accomplices and name every person he could think of that could be an enemy of the king. So he thinks, oh, I've done all this, blah, blah, blah. The king's probably going to pardon me. And he acted like that as well to the press and the public. He seemed to act like a star, thinking he's going to be pardoned. So he was quite surprised when the king sentenced him to execution by guillotine. His then co-conspirators as well were arrested and tried. And they were executed. I think Pepin was first, then Murray, then Fieschi. And Fieschi's head was then used by a doctor, and it was also painted. There is a painting of his head, as well as drawings. Oh, um, I thought you meant they actually painted the head. That would have been a lot funnier. <laughs> that would have been funnier, yes. But, um, and also, the king, yeah, the king also ordered his um, court painter to paint what happened on the day, that sort of thing. Pepin decided <laughs> to reveal a load of other conspirators as well, and revolutionary groups. So they got all arrested and tried. Seven further plots were discovered by the king within a year. So whatever reason they decided to try and kill the king, it completely failed, was completely incompetent, and it ended up strengthening his position. And here's the kicker. He had a load of king's military and artillery officers check the weapon afterwards. And if they'd been any way sort of competent or even had a brain cell between them, even in just basic weapon design or an artillery officer or just basic common sense, the artillery officers figured out that the weapon used properly and with the gunpowder used properly could have killed up to 200 people. The king and his family and staff would have been all just red goo down this road. So it's just, <laughs> it's just so stupid. Not one point did they think, oh, this is a bad idea or let's get somebody we know who's friendly to our cause to look over our plans well let's no, not just... build the damn thing in the apartment with my name on yeah and there's actually a plaque <laughs> there now as well that still commemorates it which is... commemorates their stupidity Holmes any yeah. questions I mean maybe they should have covered their trails and tracks by dressing as art students that's who yeah. they are <laughs> <laughs> um, uh-huh. so this basically comes down to the weapon which I'm guessing you hinted the fact they had no expert they had no expertise at all um, that's the thing the one of them did see, they did seem to design it um, I think it was Murray that designed it and he took it to Pepin who agreed with the design, and Pepin was part of this Society of the Rights of Man. So he's quite educated, and you think had some skill. So the artillery officers that looked at it afterwards said, well, there's something in the design, 
but if they'd used any common sense or asked someone, they could have actually done a lot of damage, but in the end they didn't. And then as well as design, did they make it themselves as well? Yeah. They spent money on it. I don't know whether they outsourced it for people to make these pipes or the frame, but they spent around £2,000 in today's money. It was about 500 francs at the time. So It doesn't seem like a lot. You get a lot of bang for your buck, though, don't you? Yeah, you most do. of it's banging on you, though. <laughs> the only person that didn't pay was Fieschi, because he decided to rent the flat out in his name as well. So it's a miracle they were never caught before the day. Oh dear, Clive, any questions? How long did King Louis Philippe go on afterwards? I think it was about 10 to 12 years afterwards. Oh. So it really was an abject failure. Well, yes, unless you're was. one of the poor 18 people that happened to be standing in the wrong yeah. place, yeah. Yeah. Including some military hierarchy. Right, we're almost halfway, so we will pause for drinks. But I just want to, we were interviewing Helen Carr this week. She's absolutely lovely about her new book coming soon on John of Gaunt. And she did, uh, it's more of an anecdote than a case to be put, but she was telling me that so John of Gaunt was effectively a regent for his nephew, Richard II, who was a little shit. And uh, Richard was plotting to off him behind his back. And Uncle John finds out about this. So he gets some heavies together and he goes to Richard's castle and he says to the guys on the door, right, you lot, wait out here. Don't come in till I tell you. He basically goes in, gives him a whooping for planning to assassinate him. And then Richard II's mum made him apologise to his uncle. (laughs) Which I thought was brilliant. Say sorry to your uncle for planning to assassinate him. Yeah, so Richard II, who was basically a bellend in, in many more ways than that, but that one amused me. So let's go get some refills and then we'll come back because we've got some hilarious ones still to come. Right, we are back with some more nonsense assassination attempts from history for you. We have all replenished our drinks. Uh, John's even brought bar snacks to the party. Um, we are going to... He's got an... What's your obnoxious mug say as well? You had me at... You had me at... I don't speak German. Panzerkampfwagen 6 Ausführung E. So, <laughs> is that the one from the tank museum? A friend of mine got that for me. Who, who's uh, he, he's actually an, an uh, author who's into tanks. So, there you go. We just call them tankies. Tankies. Tankies, exactly. Cavalry <laughs> people are donkey wallopers. <laughs> but but this this one was an inferior model because it didn't have uh, 76, uh, 760 uh, barrels on it, overloaded <laughs> with three and a half inches of powder. So <laughs> brilliant. Uh, let's go to let's go to Andy Lex in Dublin, um, who has left Austria alone this week because when you're talking about historical nonsense, I'm guessing there's some on your doorstep. Oh, God, yeah. Um, this one's very close to home, actually. It happens just up the road from me. Um, I'm going to be talking about the assassination of King Brian Baru at the Battle of Clontarf. Um, so, a little bit of context. The reason I love this assassination so much, I guess, and why I think it is so stupid is it is incredibly spontaneous, preventable, and completely pointless, as the man was 88 years old. Um, <laughs> and it also features probably the worst servant of all time like this is not even private baldrick levels of batman ship this is a whole other stratosphere that we have entered here so brian baru is a high king of ireland as the story goes there's approximately 150 kings at this point so it's a pretty big deal but obviously keeping everyone in line is very difficult and he's having a lot of trouble 
with um, the kings in Leinster in particular, which is the area around Dublin. Uh, so this leads up to this Battle of Clontarf, which happens in 1014, uh, which is about 150 years before the Normans turned up. When I talked about that last week, maybe, or the week before, I can't remember. Um, Clontarf was probably the largest battle on Irish soil uh, during the medieval period, but we're not really sure. It's just the one that everyone tends to write about. Uh, to put it very simply, it's the battle that kicked the Vikings out of Ireland. But when you look into it, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that. So the opposing forces on Brian's side, we have a combined force of Norse and Irish soldiers. And ranging against Brian was a combined force of Norse and Irish soldiers. So you can start to see where some of the confusion might lie. Um, the difficulty within this battle with most medieval battles is that medieval chroniclers tend not to have heard of the term objective. Um, uh, so <laughs> the description of Brian's enemies, for example, the Danish are described as fearful, murderous, hard-hearted, vehement, impetuous battalions of Danamarkans compared to Brian's soldiers who are fine, intelligent, acute, fierce, valorous, mighty, royal, gifted, renowned, and champions. So you're getting a sense of the bias going on in the document here. Um, in addition, you've got a lot of main characters who are mentioned. Now, these are important to the assassination story because these are the guys. Brian's family takes quite a beating in this battle. He loses a lot of members of his family, including his son, who apparently killed 106 people. Again, we're not really sure. But let's get to the actual assassination. So Brian wins the battle, probably thanks to his son, who killed 106 people. Um, he's very late into his 80s, so he doesn't actually fight. He stays behind in a tent or a church, depending on who you read. Um, and he's said to have sung 150 prayers and psalms of various kinds as the battle goes on. And the Chronicle, when you read it, makes repeated references to him adjusting his cushion. So we just spend a lot of the time sitting on the ground. He's quite a frail man at this point, is really the point of this. At the end of the battle, which, as I say, Brian has won. The war is effectively over. A earl called Brodier, who was an enemy of Brian's cause and was very well known to Brian's camp. He's one of the chief conspirators against him that started this basically mini civil war. He walks up to Brian's tent. You might be wondering what the guards did. Well, apparently, according to Wound Chronicle, the guards were all stuck in a swamp. They couldn't move. Their horses were stuck. So he just walked past them. He then walks into the tent and doesn't recognize anyone there. He's not sure who Brian is. So he asks Brian's servant, who are these people? Which will be a perfect time to shut the fuck up. <laughs> Instead, Brian's servant says, oh, this is the High King of Ireland. Brodier turns to Brian and decapitates him. Uh, Brian then kills one of Brodier's men, and yes, I'm aware of the order in which I said that, but that's the way it's written. <laughs> Headless Brian kills one of the assassins, <laughs> and Brodier flees the scene. Uh, the story gets worse when you have Bro the fate of Brodier, because that same day, Brian has another son, not the 106, or this is Brian's brother, sorry. Brian's brother is called Ulf the Quarrelsome, which isn't really someone you want to get on the wrong side of. He is mentioned twice in the Chronicles. The first time he's killing people of note on the battlefield, and the second time he's chasing after Brodir. So he finds Brodir in a forest, uh, guts him, then ties his intestines to a tree and forces him to walk around it. Uh, he didn't survive that experience. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a good one. <laughs> um, so Ulf is, uh, you know, he deals with Brodir, but the aftermath of this is obviously very important, and the Chronicle 
that I read make specific note of several instance, instances that occurred after Brian's death. So first of all, modesty and chastity departed from the women of Aaron at the same news. So <laughs> whatever that entails, uh, possibly worse, two thirds of the milk of the cows departed after Brian's death. <laughs> So obviously that's my submission. You have an 80 something year old man being killed after a battle he has won as a result of his servant just being a complete fool. And then the assassin gets killed the very same day because he doesn't try and disguise the fact that he did it. So that's Ireland at it again. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. I I was with you all the way until you told us about the modesty and chastity departing. Mm. And and I couldn't see what was wrong with the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Brian was just holding them back, really. Um, I I don't even know where to start with this one. Holmes, any questions? Apart from, I mean, is it true? For a start, I mean, Brian isn't a really particularly medieval name, for a start, is it? (laughs) Oh, no, he's referred, it's, um, that's an anglicisation of it. Okay. Uh, it's Brian Boruma, uh, Maxenetag. And then also, it seems it seems a very a very sort of complicated way to kill an eighty eight year old. Surely, like an icy path and a loud bang would be equally as effective. <laughs> I mean, you think you think. Well, uh, he did kill one of the. He was clearly in very good shape. As not only did his cushion only need adjusting three or four times, but he also killed one of the assassins while headless. Yeah, this is. I was going to say. So he's supposed to have taken out. I mean, I see the thing about the chickens running around with no heads for a few seconds while the blood pumps out. But having the cognitive reasoning to behead someone while you have no head, it's pretty impressive. But also, I don't even think eighty-eight-year-old chickens, or however they are, or however old they are in chicken years, would be able to do that running around the courtyard, the farmyard. He had had a long rest on his cushion, though. Exactly. And one hundred and fifty prayers, like. Yeah, get God on your side before you, you know, meet your maker, so to speak. What was the purpose of this? So they killed him, and then what was going to happen? If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So the, the end of the battle, it's sort of known as the battle, as I said, that gets rid of the Vikings in Ireland. Um, but really what it has done is it cemented his position as this uh, high king because he would have put down trouble that would have been happening in Leinster and I think Ulster was also railing against him at that point as well. So it's, it's a consolidation effort more so than anything else. Um, had he not been killed, you probably would have had him rule for, I don't know, until he passed away due to natural causes, whenever that would have happened. Five Next, minutes no, later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose, you know, if you're desperately waiting for modesty and chastity to sort of fall away, can you, five minutes is going to take a while, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I think of the cow's milk as well. <laughs> it's just, so, yeah, just ah. exploring that a little bit more. So he's beheaded, he yes. beheads someone while he's beheaded, and then all mm-hmm. the girls in Ireland go and put out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> It feels to me like there's some steps missing. Well, I mean, there's other less interesting, uh, you know, things that happen as a result of his death that I didn't take down because they weren't nearly as funny. Um, (laughs) But it's generally a lot of people weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I think the female reaction around leaking milk. Yeah. Yeah. When did all these things kind of get reversed? Because we all know that there's lots of Kerrygold coming out of Ireland. And presumably women in Ireland aren't immodest or unchaste anymore. For the sake of my career, I'm not going to comment on the second. <laughs> <laughs> but I am lactose intolerant, so I can't really comment on the first either. <laughs> I love it. Good. So, Eva, I love what this says psychologically about the Irish, that the two worst things they can think of is all the girls running around putting out and all the milk just leaking out the cows. The two worst things that can happen, like a plague of locusts or a pandemic or, no, the cows. Um, I love it. Any more questions, guys? Not for me. I think I should have had my fill. <laughs> I just, I love, who is this? It's the King of Ireland. It's a lie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a priest. He's fine. <laughs> oh, dear. Right, let's go on to Emma, because Emma's going to have something suitably hilarious, I know, from the ancient world. Obviously. Um, This is my area of expertise. Um, And then James panicked me that somebody might steal it before I got here. Sent me a message. (laughs) Um, But, um, so, yeah, naturally, um, I have gone with a Roman one. And I have gone with um, the assassination of the Empress Agrippina by her son, the Emperor Nero. Um, Which is... The classic story of mother murders stepfather, puts son on throne. Son doesn't want to be married to his wife anymore um, because she's too nice. Um, And so decides to murder his mother so that he can marry the less nice lady that he's in love with instead. Um, Or so the story goes. Unfortunately for Nero, um, he was in a difficult position whereby his mother was considerably more popular than Nero himself was um considerably more popular it's not hard though is it it's not hard because (laughs) she was a twat um but he (laughs) she was just freakishly popular to the extent that he believed that if and was in fact told that if he asked the Praetorian guard his private army to just kind of 
do a classic Roman stabbing that um, it would not go well because they would literally refuse to stab her because uh, they loved her too much because she was the daughter of one of the kind of greatest generals of the Roman world who had defeated the Germans and brought back their national pride. Um, and also she was pretty great and everybody thought she was great. Um, so he decided first to therefore go with the second classic Roman attempt, um, the way you get rid of an enemy, which had been successful for him and Agrippina in getting rid of Claudius, um, and also in getting rid of um, his stepbrother um, and also half-brother, but um, he decided to try and poison her. Um, which is classic, you'd think it would normally go well, it had been successful previously, um, and he has a very talented poisoner on staff. It takes him a while to get some poison into <laughs> her staff. food. Oh, he does. <laughs> Just in case I want to get rid of anybody. He does, yeah, he has a woman called Lacusta, um, who um, was uh, tried for some kind of mysterious poisoning thing in her hometown, um, and became so renowned for such good poisons um, that she was brought into the imperial household uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, because she uh, she did good poison like they were like they had gold standards of poison in the Roman world which were ones that made it look like a natural wasting disease or ones that made it look like you were going mad um, and she was apparently very good at those anyway <laughs> So they had Lacusta on staff. It took him a while to get a member of Agrippina's household that um, would kind of, that he could get to even poison her because they all liked her. Um, but eventually he managed to, to poison something, but it turned out that she was a very sensible woman who was not a complete freaking idiot. Um, <laughs> and she took antidotes to common poisons, which she probably got from the same poisoner <laughs> um, every day. Um, and so he was unable to poison her because she was too smart for him. So he then, according to Suetonius, this is only recorded in one place, but I like it really a lot, so I'm going to go with it anyway. Um, he then attempted to rig her ceiling in her bedroom so that the plaster um, and the kind of um, what do you call them, beams would collapse on her while she was sleeping. And it would look like she had died in a terrible and tragic accident um, and therefore he could be oh I am so sad my beloved mother has died and he would be able to get like the popularity of her and he would look like a morning sun um, but um, and everyone would feel very sorry for him and he would also get his way unfortunately uh, a member of her household tipped her off that something was going on and so she just went to one of her other houses um, <laughs> Um, by this time Nero is getting very frustrated um, and bored and annoyed so he and a guy um, who is in the navy come up with a plan that nobody particularly understands because it makes little to no sense which is that they're going to put her on a collapsing boat a kind of trick boat that um, this navy guy whose name is Paquetas um, has seen in an arena somewhere um, that they are going is going to somehow collapse while she's on it and kind of throw her off and then go back together again and sail happily to its destination. Um, and again, it will look like she just uh, dropped drunkenly off the side of the boat um, and he will be, uh, again, scot-free, get away with it. So it is, there's a, a festival, he invites her down to 
uh, one of their fancy holiday homes um, on either side of a bay in southern Italy um, to, to come for dinner. She is suspicious of him because obviously she's not thick so she has worked out that some weird stuff is going on <laughs> in her life right now um, and a lot of people like uh, a lot of people have been suspicious around her food and bedroom um, so she initially refuses to get into the boat to show how like ludicrous their lives are they have they are staying in houses on opposite sides of the bay which are about five kilometers away from each other and the quickest way to get there is to just get a boat from one side to the other um, so she refuses to get on it while she's sober um, and she goes to dinner um, being carried in a litter uh, but while she's there he's very nice to her and it looks like they might be going to have reconciliation and she presumably drinks a lot of unmixed wine and eats a lot of nice food um, and at the end he walks her down to the uh, dock and kind of takes her to the boat and he's like take my boat everything will be lovely it was so nice to see you he kisses her face he kisses her boobs we won't go into it um, and then he kind of puts her onto this boat and there's this lovely scene in Tacitus, which is kind of all very idyllic, where she's floating and it's a calm evening and she's sitting with her two friends and then all of a sudden the boat just kind of throws her off um, and she falls into the, the sea, um, which would be a problem for her if she hadn't spent a year and a half previously of her life in exile on a small island and was a very, very strong swimmer. Um, She's also, as I've mentioned, not stupid. So her immediate reaction is, oh fuck. And she just stays quiet and swims away. Her friend, her, her kind of enslaved handmaiden on the other hand, says, help me, help me. I'm Agrippina, I'm the Empress, um, and gets beaten to death with an oar. <laughs> um, <laughs> Agrippina swims back to the bay, um, pulls herself out of the water, uh, goes back to her house, turns up kind of dripping wet and says, there's been a terrible accident. Somebody sends someone to my son to tell him what has happened um, and sits grumpily in her house. Um, the messenger turns up at Nero's house where he is celebrating and goes, been an accident, but it's all right. Your mom's okay. Nero panics and is like, I am all out of ideas at this stage. Like the boat, cannot believe the boat didn't work. The collapsing boat seems so foolproof. Um, so he grabs a dagger, throws it at the floor. I have to assume that he's more than slightly drunk at the time as well. Throws it at the feet of the messenger and says, oh no, my mother has sent someone to kill me. Um, the head of the Praetorian Guard, whose name is Burris, is just like, uh, I don't, what is happening here? But um, some other guys are more than happy to go along with this. And so a bunch of men uh, go, oh no, she's trying to kill you, and go to her house, uh, march the five kilometres, and burst into her house and drag her out of her bedroom. And she stands up and says, if you're here to tell me that you've come from my son, you can tell him that I'm fine. If you're here to kill me, then I don't believe that he would send anyone to kill me. And they hit her on the head. Um, and she falls to the floor and then pulls herself back up again and says, if you're going to kill me, kill me here, and points to her womb, at which point they stab her to death. Um, <laughs> just outline as well, because it doesn't end for Nero well either, does it? It doesn't end for Nero. Nobody likes that. Um, <laughs> and that's sort of the end of any semblance of possibility. Like, uh, 
of popularity that he had. And he then went on to divorce Octavia, who everybody loved, marry Popeye, who everybody hated, kick Popeye to death while she was pregnant, bounce um, around being a twat, make everybody listen to his singing, be horrible, burn some Christians, burn Rome, um, just generally be awful until eventually some troops rose up against him because they were like, cannot take this anymore. This is just too embarrassing. Um, and he attempted to poison himself, but his uh, attendant took his poison away from him and ran away when he wasn't looking. Um, <laughs> asked a gladiator to kill him, but the gladiator just refused to turn up. Was just like, yeah, I'll be there in a minute and just never came. Um, and eventually um, was too scared to commit suicide with a dagger by himself. So he got one of his enslaved attendants to help him stab himself. Um, and he died in a ditch, which is really all he deserved. What an absolute dick. Um, he was God. an absolute prick. Yeah, he really is. Like, <laughs> like Caesar levels of dickness going on, really. <laughs> He's what, to eat Caesar, genocidal maniac. Nero's just a prick. Like, yeah. He's just he didn't like, have oh. red boots. He, did, he didn't have any... He probably did, but just because he liked them. Just because he yeah, thought they were fancy. Yeah, up. Guys, any questions about the ridiculous notion? Uh, the fucking idiot handmaid. I'm Agrippina, I'm Agrippina. And then you can get... see how, like, if you're a bit dim and in a panicky yeah. mode, you'll be like, they're going to save me. It's not going to go well because eventually they're going to pull you out and be like, mm, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, like, best case scenario is that they push her back in, to be honest. But, uh, yeah, it doesn't... What um, else could he have done apart from assassinate her? Um, well, see, this is this is the question. Um, he could have, uh, like, just got on with her, I suppose. She, by that time, had been uh, marginalised quite a lot from public life, but um, she is obviously still a very strong presence in his life and in running the empire. He could have risked her wrath, um, and uh, and defied her to her face, which he had done before, but she had just sort of shouted him into not doing that anymore. Um, he's she's very good at persuading Nero to do precisely what it is that she wants. Um, so so she, he, was, she was an archetypal Italian mother. Then she's a very Italian mother. She's a she's a mother who uh, knows what she wants, <laughs> um, and she wanted Nero to be emperor um, and she was also quite good at being an empress so she thought she had some opinions he might want to hear and he disagreed quite strongly with that. How old was she at that time? She was in her late 40s when she died. 49, 48, 49, something like that. Holmes, any questions? How do, I'm slightly intrigued by the collapsing boat. How did that, how was that supposed now to you work? See, there's a lot of scholarship on how the collapsing boat worked, um, of how, whether it had some kind of whether it opened, like the hull opened in some way, or whether it would like tilt in some way. The only real, like they all just say a collapsing boat. The only boast a contemporary source is a play called the Octavia, which is mostly about how sad everybody is for Octavia, um, in which it is a, a very old and broken boat um, that gets rammed deliberately by another boat um but the the mechanics of the collapsing boat are entirely obscure unfortunately but that means you can imagine whatever you want i mean surely it would have been easier just to send a windsurfer wouldn't it based on my <laughs> experience no fucker can start one of those so you'd think but then he 
Nero has an eye for theatricality that he enjoys very much, um, but also knows nothing about Agrippina at all. Um, so nothing that involved water that wasn't somebody holding her under it was going to work because she was a very, very good swimmer. What, what happened to the crew on the boat? Did they know this was going to happen or were they just slaves who were sent off to drown as well? This is a whole nother question, is were, if they were going to be... Um, Sacrifice? Did they know they were going to be sacrificed? Somebody has to know in order to set the whole thing off. Um, but again, entirely obscure. And, and didn't the fact that he recruited his own poisoner draw <laughs> attention? Uh, it, nobody loved that fact. But um, and she was uh, brutally murdered after he fell. She was one of the ones who was publicly executed. Um, but she was brought in by uh, Agrippina and was the person who mixed the poison that killed Claudius because Claudius was um, believed to be very difficult to poison because he ate too much and had a torpid metabolism. <laughs> um, so she was brought in because it was believed that she would be able to put together a, a poison that would overcome that. <laughs> Emma, you're writing a book on ancient Roman murder, aren't you? I am, I am. This one is in my other book about Agrippina, um, but, uh, and it very briefly is in the book on Roman murder, which is out in September. Um, and, but it does have a whole chapter on emperors murdering people and emperors being murdered. Well, at the start, you mentioned, you referred to a classic Roman stabbing, which is... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, that's how I've got now, because I wrote, I've written this book on Roman murder and they're stabbing each other all the time. Um, and that is, that's the classic way that you get rid of somebody. You either send them a dagger so that they um, kill themselves, which is the kind of polite way to do it, um, and it gives them the out of a noble Polite suicide. way to do it. Yeah, or you send someone around to do it for them. <laughs> Um, or like in uh, Domitian, Domitian was my other possibility, but this one's much better. Domitian, um, some a guy came up to him who was wearing a false sling and had spent five days walking around with a false sling. I could say he'd hurt his arm. Um, and he came, went up to Domitian and said, I've got some very important news. I think I've uncovered a plot to kill you. And Domitian went, oh my God, come over here, come into my bedroom. Um, and they went to his bedroom and immediately this guy pulled uh, a dagger out of his false sling and stabbed Mission right in the dick. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Ow>. <laughs> but that's what you get for in, inviting a stranger into your bedroom. It is. Without a potential assassination. It's not bright, is it? <laughs> um, uh, yeah. So. This is excellent. I would have That's expected... a classic Roman stabbing right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would have expected nothing less awesome from ancient Rome where they Thanks. are all lunatics. Uh, Alina, bring us back into the 19th century. This is a famous one. This is a famous one. And again, I've been given like 20 minutes to do this one. So please bear with me. <clears throat> Only because I was busy doing my... not turning up. Yeah, well, that, yeah, well, anyway. <clears throat> so I'm going to list off some, some, some years for you all. So 1840, 1843, sorry, 1842, three times. 1849, 1850, 1872, and 1882. Can anyone guess who I'm talking about? No? Queen Victoria. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah, all right then. Mr. Know-it-all. Let me take you all back to the 29th of May, 1842. 
an open carriage ride after Sunday morning service at St. James's Palace. And lo and behold, you have Queen Victoria and Prince Albert in an open car thing, whatever they're called. Prince Albert, I quote, saw a little swarthy, ill-looking rascal, and he was pointing his pistol in his direction. He watched as John Francis pulled the trigger. Clearly he missed, because Queen Victoria is still alive. But the gunman disappeared into Green Park. However, this is not the end. The 30th of May, the following day, Queen Victoria pretty much refuses to be confined in the palace. She's like, no, I'm going to go out. I don't care. So she goes out again with Prince Albert for an evening drive, again in an open carriage. So five paces from the carriage, a shot rings out and lo and behold, it is the same guy. <laughs> Tries out twice in a row. However, again, he misses because clearly Queen Victoria is still alive. He's tackled by the police. And that's the end of it. But wait a minute, you say, could this truly be the end? No, no, it is not the end. Because a mere five weeks later, the 3rd of July, it happens all over again. Right? So, but it's not the same guy this time. It is 17 year old. Now, I actually feel really sad for this guy because the other guy was a complete and utter twat. But this guy, who's 17 years old, John William Bean, um, he was actually deformed, he had spinal deformity, and um, he was really unhappy with his life. And he was really up, you know, he was depressed. And he just oh, somehow. Oh, <laughs> no, I know, but it's, yeah, anyway, you know, the, 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 the person in me, the kind of empath in me is kind of, like, oh, poor guy. Anyway, um, so again, they are leaving, this time, instead of coming back from service, they're leaving for service on a Sunday, and this guy pulls out a gun, pushes himself to the front of the crowd, shoots, misses, and that's basically the end of the story. Oh, dear. Three, what? literally in five weeks. Was John William Bean dark, uh, swarthy and ill-looking as well? I don't know. I, 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 Alex has better access to, to these kinds of documents than I he's do. A hunchback, so, I don't know. He? He's like, got Yeah, he's a hunchback. A hunchback. A, a flying hunchback trying to shoot Queen Victoria. It, it yeah. like a it's plan, not... as someone had used twice in the last few months and failed doing. I was going to say, it sounds like the first guy who had two goes gave um, Clive's assassin shooting lessons. <laughs> <laughs> But it, it's slightly odd. I wasn't. I wasn't really aware of that. We don't tend to have that many assassinations in the UK. In fact, we've got one prime minister that was assassinated that hardly anyone knows about. Who's that? Spencer Percival. Yeah. Oh yeah, they ran. They ran into the House of Commons, didn't he? The guy who yeah. shot him, right? Yeah. Which you know, most most Brits would be able to tell you that Abraham Lincoln got shot or Archduke Franz Ferdinand, but not our own prime minister, which is slightly slightly odd in the general scheme of things. There was it, an it was, attempt on Margaret Thatcher. Was it Hilary Mantel or was just that the hatchet job book she did afterwards? <laughs> no, that was the IRA bombing, wasn't this it? Bryce yeah. David uh, yeah. <laughs> I was I was gonna do one about Poland, but they're they're all like not as fun as this one. <laughs> Polish history I'm learning is not funny or fun usually. Quite it does, it does have soldiers and wing angels' wings on their backs, which is cool. The hussars, yes, 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 they're pretty awesome. This is true. So, any but, other questions that I can't answer? What, what uh, happened? To... The third guy, what happened to him? 
Uh, oh, he went in for hard labour for 18 months. Only 18 months? Yeah. He, mu he must have had a good lawyer. Andrew, Andrew, you probably know more about this area of law than I do, but wasn't McNaughton who, did, who gave us the McNaughton rules an attempted assassin of Queen Victoria as well? He that might was have, the Prime Minister. He might have been. I'm, I'm, I'm a media lawyer, Clive, not a criminal lawyer. I know, I you, know but you studied criminal law. Below you in the legal, in the legal I, profession, but I'm not quite there yet. You I'll studied, tell you, I have you a section more recently than I did. <laughs> I do have a section of that in uh, the murder book, um, and he was suffering from delusions and believed that the Tories were stalking him and trying to ruin his life. So he decided to try and kill the head Tory by going for the prime minister, but oh. accidentally killed no, his. Holmes, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> <laughs> killed his secretary instead, and was then sent off to um, an asylum on the basis that um, he. It was very polite, but thought the Tories were trying to kill him, um, and that was considered a delusion. <laughs> but, it, but if he thinks that the Tories are trying to track and trace him, he might just have been president. Maybe we will have to carry that app, app around with us. Uh, That's exactly he, what they'll be doing. <laughs> it was just ahead of his time. <laughs> Excellent. Any more questions? No, none here. Not for me, no. I was quite impressed with myself because I was studying the McNaughton Law. The other day, but no, that was that was insanity, wasn't it? Back in the yeah. day, yeah, yeah. Is the is it not the difference between you can't say that uh, I didn't know it was wrong, so it's okay that I killed him? Because then, under that premise, someone mad can do whatever the fuck they want and get away with it and just claim to be mad. It's whether society views you as being mad. Is that right? I have no recollection whatsoever. <laughs> I, ju I just remembered the name. It's a long time. It's a long time ago. Oh, right. Okay. Let's move on to John. Because John's got one uh, stateside for us. Yeah, we don't have really colourful assassinations here, but we try. Um, we've, As you probably know, uh, while we can't commit regicide over here constitutionally, uh, we can take a, a shot or two at our uh, at our heads of state, and uh, a lot of presidents have been uh, on the business end of assassination plots. Um, but I'd like to talk about one that stood out to me because it really goes to the heart of an assassination, which is in some ways a, con a social contract between the victim and the assassin. The uh, Assassin can, can choose the method, the assassin can choose a lot, the place, the time, uh, but they most importantly have to choose the victim. And you want to make sure that there's not too much of an imbalance between the competence of the assassin and the uh, durability of the victim. And, and we've heard a few, uh, you know, sort of Rasputin tales uh, today about uh, uh, victims who proved resilient. And here, here's one of them. Uh, this was our 26th president of the United States. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt. He was uh, he, he was elevated from vice president to president of the U.S. in 1900 or, or 1902, I think it was, uh, after the assassination of his predecessor William McKinley. He uh, was reelected in 1904 and uh, was constitutional or, or traditionally, not constitutionally at the time, but traditionally believed that a president should not serve more than two terms, so he stepped down. Uh, in 1908, his successor, the Republican President Taft, was elected, and uh, Roosevelt was uh, was a progressive. He was so 
so much opposed to Taft's uh, policies that he decided to run as a third party candidate of what he, uh, the Progressive Party that he had nicknamed the Bull Moose Party. And uh, we'll get to that, uh, why that's important in a second. Well, in 1912, he's running for re-election against uh, President Taft, and he was going to give a speech to a crowd in Milwaukee, presidential campaign speech, on October the 12th, 1912, so not long before the election. Uh, he was staying at the uh, Gil Gilpatrick Hotel in Milwaukee, which is now the Hyatt Hotel, and as he was getting into his car, uh, a man named John Schrank uh, stepped up uh, about five feet away from him. Now, Schrank was an unemployed New York City uh, bartender, and he'd had these visions of President McKinley appearing in a monk's robe, telling him to kill Theodore Roosevelt. And when the uh, president, when a, a uh, now dead president from the United States comes to you in a monk's robe and tells you to do something, naturally you're going to do it. So he traveled to Milwaukee, and on that fateful day, he managed to get through the crowd of people who were there to watch Roosevelt get into his car, and he pulled out a Colt revolver, fired a 38 caliber bullet straight into Roosevelt's chest. Now, the man was immediately tackled to the ground. Uh, the police uh, pulled it, yanked him to his feet. The crowd, before the police got there, the crowd was about to beat the shit out of him. And, uh, but they were all surprised to see Roosevelt stand up and say, no, don't hurt the man. And he looked at the man contemptuously and told the police to take him away. Uh, everybody figured that Roosevelt had not been hit and he got back into his car. Uh, he actually had been shot. Uh, the bullet went into his chest. It lodged next to one of his ribs and it had penetrated a glasses case that he carried in his breast pocket as well as a folded up 50 page manuscript. This is one of the few times when politicians can believe that uh, brevity is not uh, the soul of, well, it's, it's, it's brevity may be the soul of, uh, of being assassinated. So uh, he, he was uh, bleeding through his shirt. Um, he, he could tell, he could feel a hole in his chest, but he coughed into his hand and he didn't find any blood there. Uh, so we knew that the bullet had not penetrated his lung. So the driver is about to take him to his hospital, and he said, no, we're going to the auditorium. I have a speech to give. So Roosevelt stands before this crowd a few minutes later, tells the crowd, uh, I need you to be very quiet. You may not understand that I've just been shot, and I'm gonna, this speech may be a little bit shorter than I'd hoped, but I'll do the best I can. Uh, Roosevelt then referred to the assassination as a man who tried to kill him and said, uh, with, with contempt, it takes more than a bullet to kill a bull moose. And he proceeded to give an 84 minute speech while bleeding. Uh, he left and made it back to the hospital. The doctors believed that he could not, uh, uh they couldn't safely remove the bullet. He was, uh, he was 53 years old at that point. And, uh, he, I think may have been one of the uh, few people who not only survived a direct hit to the chest uh, from an assassination, but was also able to give a speech and mock his own assassination for being such a screw up at what he did. So uh, while this is not one of the most ingenious plots, it's in very straightforward American style, 
I think uh, you, you could you could argue, um, or at least ask rhetorically, how badly must you suck as an assassin if your victim gives a speech right after you shoot him and makes fun of you for trying to kill him? <laughs> Not only that, but had a certain other numbered president uh, been in that situation and hadn't in the bullet hadn't even hit, he would have spent those eighty four minutes building a wall around the White House, right? <laughs> <laughs> We've had uh, what for a while we had uh, what they called the twenty year rule that every president who was elected or uh, or, or served in, in every twenty year period eighteen forty sixty eighty and so forth mm. was uh, they died in office. Um, and many of them, Lincoln, McKinley, Garfield, um, Kennedy, uh, were actually assassinated. Uh, that stopped with Ronald Reagan, in 19, who was elected in 1980 and uh, survived an assassination attempt with a bullet in his chest. Uh, as he was wheeled into the hospital, he looked at the doctors who were about to cut him open and said, I hope you're all Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, any questions? I'm still intrigued by the fact that he went and did that, that speech. What did he do? Was it because he was put on the campaign trail? He was on the campaign trail. It was a, a very uh, rough, uh, very intense campaign. And he was the guy who liked to prove that he was tougher than everyone else. In some ways, he was a bit eccentric. One of my all-time favorite quotes from the White House history, uh, where the, pres the presidential mansion, was from the butler during the, uh, the Theodore Roosevelt administration, who uh, came out when uh, Teddy Roosevelt was going to into the backyard with his grandchildren and said, Mr. President, do you realize how ridiculous you look up in that tree? Uh, Roosevelt was the kind of guy who was not going to be stopped by much. And uh, he just had a very, very tough constitution. He'd been out West. He'd been in fist fights with ranchers. He'd been... Uh, a rancher himself. Uh, he, he, was, he was a very robust individual. So when you're looking at do, going Liam Neeson on somebody and uh, you want to make sure that you pick the right uh, target. And that's where I believe that John Schrank, the unemployed New York bartender, was, uh, had failed in his, his duties as an assassin. He did not uh, keep the social contract to only go after people you have a chance of killing. <laughs> do, do we think that the, the effect of the, the wound might have been exaggerated here? I mean, even if it missed a vital organ, et cetera, et cetera, there would have still been quite a lot of blood, wouldn't there? Which people would have spotted when he a, stood up first of all and said, no, you know, just leave him a little bit or whatever. And then when he went onto the, the speech venue and then delivered the speech, or did he have a load of change of clothes and lots of bandaging? No, he didn't have bandaging. In fact, when he first got to the hotel, and, and, and thank you, Holmes, this was a, a detail I, I omitted. He actually pulled his coat open and showed the crowd where there was blood all over his shirt. And I think if you go on to Google or, I don't know, one of, one of those places and you look up uh, Theodore Roosevelt assassination, you can see his shirt, which has a probably about a one foot uh, diameter uh, blood stain on it. Uh, from that attempt he it, it was a it was a serious hit but uh he didn't it, it wasn't enough for him to bleed out didn't didn't nick an artery for instance and uh it didn't hit a vital organ so hey what are you gonna do he's he's doing, the, for doing the hulk thing on the stage he's yeah but 
braver than me. My cat accidentally scratched the top of my foot when he just walked across it yesterday, and I was going on about it for about three hours. <laughs> oh, and I know I dropped a book on my foot the other day and screamed like an eight-year-old girl. So, <laughs> I mean, he died about seven years afterwards, didn't he? Did this lead to a, his earlier death, or was that just happened otherwise? I, I think it was. He seemed to have recovered pretty well from it. Uh, he he did keep the bullet lodged in him uh, for the rest of his life, but uh, but it uh, I I cannot rem I think he died. I believe he died of a stroke. Uh, that's one that I should remember, and I'm just drawing a blank on. But, but it, he, it was not connected. I don't believe. But he didn't win the election. How did he do? Oh no, he did. He did not win the election, and. Uh, he became very. Uh, he he was very down about that. He became depressed a bit. He went off to, uh, to uh, go down the Amazon River, um, and uh, just exploring. And uh, I, the uh, uh, there's there's a, a book on it called I believe it's the uh, River of Dreams, but it's uh, he he almost died there of malaria and was uh, basically brought back uh, in very very bad shape. Um, he'd been out uh, hunting elephants and things in Africa. He'd gone uh, down through the Amazon. He, he was trying to find some way to keep himself busy. And then one of his sons died during the, who was a flyer in the First World War, died. And uh, he, he sort of, uh, he always had an irrepressible spirit, but he was, uh, it, it was very hard on him, sort of like Churchill's last few years. And he did shoot little bears. Uh, he, 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 famously refused to shoot a little bear that was brought to him, which is why they call it teddy bears. But uh, yes, he, he was no stranger to shooting bears. I think he just thought it was a bit unsporting to bring a bear cub and uh, sit it right there in front of him and say, hey, you want to take a shot? Maybe he was worried that uh, from five feet away, uh, the bear <laughs> might not be killed and might give a speech uh, castigating him. <laughs> oh, that could have been, that bear assassination could have been on tonight. Um, right, let's round off with my one, because uh, it's just fucking nonsense. Uh, so I need to take you to 1931 and the Treaty for Limitation and Reduction of Naval Armament being signed by Britain, Japan, France, Italy and the US. So it's designed to limit naval military forces uh, like an arms race building up like it had before World War I. Uh, there are some people in the Japanese Navy who are really pissed at this. They're not satisfied with the rules of the treaty and they think it makes Japan look weak. So they plan to assassinate the Japanese Prime Minister uh, Suyoshi um, and have a coup d'etat. They're going to, uh, all the conspirators are going to take um, places in the government and replace it with military rule. That's what they want. And they're not alone. There's uh, some civilian members of the Nationalist Party um, who call themselves the League of Blood. Uh, they plan on storming the Prime Minister's residence and not only offing him, but his 21-year-old son. But then in March 1932, one of these naval officers called Koga learns that someone's coming to Japan who presents a wholly better uh, prospect of an assassinee in Charlie Chaplin. And their logic is that if you shoot Charlie Chaplin, you can get America to start a war with you and then the military guys will get to take over in Japan. So Koga's plan is killing a world famous actor will break Japanese US relations and lead to war. What they don't recognize is that Charlie Chaplin is not American. He's English. So that's your first fuck up. Um, 
So their first plan is to jump him, I think, as soon as, as soon as he gets there. So they're planning to get hold of him. The Japanese Navy and the League of Blood know that him and his business manager, um, his brother Sydney, are aboard the Su- Suamaru. Um, and he's got his assistant with him as well, who had grown up in Japan before setting up in Southern California. Uh, so he, that guy's language skills are invaluable on this trip. So they're on their way. The first plot is foiled by the fact that Charlie Chaplin gets the shits in Bali and is late to Japan. Um, so that's why that first bit fails. But they then go and completely exceed themselves. So he does finally, he spends a few hours at Hong Kong and then sets sail. And on the 14th of May, 1932, Charlie Chaplin lands in Kobe to a massive welcoming crowd. Um, loads of people dressed up as little tramps. Um, as he steps off the boat, airplanes fly in at low altitude, dropping uh, pamphlets of welcome. But there are people that want him dead. So he's really interested in Japanese culture and a huge devotee of um, the theatrical art form of kabuki. So he had requested a packed schedule of cultural trips and experiences. But as soon as they arrived, um, his assistant starts hearing rumours of political unrest. Um, So they're they're sparked already into a heightened state of awareness. So... For the five months this guy had been prime minister, the country's civilian government and military remained split in the way they saw Japan's future. And this was slowly coming to a boil. Um, And Kono advised Chaplin to obey just as many national customs as he could and not offend anybody. So um, he goes to the Imperial Palace, he pays his respects, then they go on to a restaurant for dinner. They have their own private room, but during the meal, six men entered and one of them sits next to... um, the assistant. He's been under threat ever since they arrived in Japan. And uh, their plan is, right, so they're thinking of a way to entice this Western man into their web of assassination and death. So they offer him porn. That's their logic. So they they go to his assistant and they say, "Um, does Charlie Chaplin want to come and look at our porn collection at his house? So Charlie Chaplin's like, "Uh, no thanks, you're right. And the guys just don't know how to process this. So they just start threatening the assistant. Um, Kono, without looking up from his plate, just says something like, he says, you've insulted his ancestors by refusing to see his porn. Um, (laughs) Chaplin, after hearing Kono's translation, puts his hand in his coat pocket as if he's got a gun and says, what is the meaning of this? Um, And then left the restaurant and ran away. So he woke up uh, to more presence and more adulation the next day from the Japanese public. And... um, was watched the whole time he was in the country, but was very fearful of his uh, safety. So later that morning, Prime Minister's Secretary issues an invitation for Chaplin to come to a welcome reception in the evening. So Chaplin initially agrees to go, but then changes his mind and suddenly told his travelling companions, I'd prefer not to go, I'd rather go and watch sumo wrestling. So that evening, he's driven off to an arena to to see that with the Prime Minister's son. So while they're watching wrestling... Um, the Prime Minister's security was ambushed by another ultra-nationalist organisation called the Black Dragon Society. As the assassins pointed their guns at the Prime Minister, Charlie Chaplin was sat comfortably in a box seat thinking that sumo was amusing to watch. If you don't understand the technique, the whole thing looks comic. Nevertheless, the effect is hypnotic and thrilling. Uh, The Prime Minister calmly asked the men not to murder him in front of his wife and daughter. They complied, and within the hour, a message was sent to his son... Um, at the wrestling stadium and Takeru was noticed that his father was dead. So they had not only killed the Prime Minister, but also attacked the home of the Minister of the Foreign Affairs and bombed several banks in Tokyo, supposedly in the hope of generating enough chaos to start a revolution um, and create enough havoc that would put 
power in the hands of the military. Uh, then they turned themselves into the police and Charlie and Chaplin and everyone else went over to the Prime Minister's residence. Uh, Chaplin saw the large pool of blood, uh, still wet on the matting, um, but the, the upside was that the guy's son was at the sumo wrestling with Charlie, so uh, they were all okay. Um, the conspirators who killed the Prime Minister were caught and court-martialed. In a statement to the court, Koga said, Chaplin is a popular figure in the United States and the darling of the capitalist class. We believe that killing him would cause a war with America. For some reason, they got stupidly lenient sentences because the court received a petition for their release that contained 350,000 signatures, all supposedly written in blood. Um, Chaplin thought the whole thing was fucking hilarious and wrote about it in length in his autobiography, saying that it was funny to think that the men didn't know he was British. I can imagine the assassins having carried out their plan and discovering I was not an American, but an Englishman. Oh, so sorry. Um, four years later, he was in Hawaii en route to Japan for another visit. Um, rebellious officers, guns blasting, converged on the new prime minister's residence, causing several fatalities in a second uh, coup d'etat attempt that became known as the February the 26th incident. Once again, Charlie Chaplin dodged the assassins because he wasn't quite there by then. But yeah, uh, some Japanese naval guys trying to use their pawn collection to incise, uh, incite Charlie Chaplin to go around their house so that they can kill him on the uh, on the sum, like summary that the Americans will be so pissed off that they murdered a British actor that they will start a war with them. Hmm. I mean, it's 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 an interesting one, and also. You know, if you were offered the chance to look at porn, I mean, yeah. you said that he put his hand in his pocket to indicate that he had a gun. But I mean, there are other <laughs> meanings with him. Yeah, no, I, I think he did the whole, you know, the stick the two fingers through your jacket pocket and pretend like that's how shit they were. But it's the fact that when they, they go up to this complete stranger in a private dining room, so they ambush him eating dinner and say, do you want to come look at my porn? To which he goes, uh, fuck off. To which they go, oh, that's it. You've insulted my ancestors. Now I've got to kill you. What's the, what's the porn pictures of their grandmothers? It was actually sewn onto silk, that's all I know. I mean, there, there, there are a couple of people I live with at university who would have been ripe to be assassinated in Japan. On the <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> I, just, I, love that, I love that that's the theory of how do we entice a white man? But also, I mean, <laughs> you're slightly mocking, you know, an English actor, although they thought it was America. But as we all know, it was David Hasselhoff who directly led to the fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> So, Alex, you're saying that Pearl Harbor was the backup plan? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> because Charlie Chaplin had the shits the first time round. <laughs> because 3,000 people had to die because Charlie Chaplin didn't like their brand of porn. Yeah, pretty much. John, John which, which comedian would it have to be today to initiate a war with America? Uh, John Mulaney. <laughs> <laughs> And then, Alex, how did they go from attempting to assassinate Chaplin to then actually assassinating the Prime Minister? Was that just luck? No, it's like, so their plan all along is if they create carnage in Japan, then the civilian government can be toppled and they can replace it with a military government who will get shit done, is their aim. But their plan all along, initially, and I mean, as far as plans go, taking out the leader of the government is the more sensible plan. But somehow... They get completely fucking waylaid by the idea of offing Charlie Chaplin using a, um, a pawn as a dangling carrot. I, I don't know quite how that works. 
Um, but yeah, the only reason the guy survives uh, the sun is because he goes off to watch sumo wrestling with Charlie Chaplin. So presumably that night they thought, Maha, he's going there for dinner. We'll get a lot of him in one go. All the government, the head of government, his family and Charlie Chaplin. And then America will be really pissed off. And also, they didn't really cover up their intentions by giving themselves names such as the League of Blood no. and the Black Dragon Society. You know, that, that, that's not sort of knitting and sewing groups, is it? Really? No, it's not. It's not like you've got any, like, relevantly, like, decent cover if they come to go through your stuff and find out what you've been up to. It's not like being a, a sculpture student, for example. No, exactly, or an electrician. <laughs> I mean, if you go to someone and say you're a member of the League of Blood, what do you do? It's not like fucking quilting, <laughs> is it? <laughs> yeah, absolute nonsense. Right, any more questions? Not for me. That's okay, cool. So that concludes all of our silly assassination. Let's go around the room and see who you would have gone for if you could not have gone for your own assassination. Uh, Clive, you don't get to answer that because you've become no. a judge. Beth? Um... I mean, they're all they're all pretty 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 good quality. Uh, we probably would have go with Agrippina, I think. Uh, Kate. Yeah, I think Nero, or maybe the uh, Supergun, James's Supergun. James. I'm gonna have to go with the Yam Yam. I'm gonna have to go with Beth's uh, Spanish Prime Minister because it was just so stupid and it still worked. <laughs> yeah, Franco and Blanco, the cartoon mice. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll go with that as well. Emma? Um, I was quite set on the loot, but then you came in with your silky porn. I know. Um, <laughs> and I'm now fully won over by the porn. I, like, you've insulted my family by refusing to look at my embroidery, <laughs> sexy embroideries. <laughs> what, what I love is that effectively, their plan is right. The plan is show him the porn. The, uh, the debauched white man will follow us to the house and we'll kill him. And then when he says no, their response is to go, please, <laughs> go on. So <laughs> if my grandma, please. <laughs> my grandma's uh, raising Exactly. Uh, Andy. Ooh, um, I mean, <laughs> the Spanish Blanco getting fired up to a second story window is just, <laughs> it's just amazing. That mental image. It's got to be. Silky porn's great, though. Elena. <laughs> uh, you didn't hear them all, but of the ones you did hear. I heard two. So out of the two that I heard, <laughs> the amazing two that I heard, I'm going to go with Emma because Agrippina is just awesome. Cool. And John? I was going to go with the headless Brian Baru, but uh, the Chase Charlie Chaplin, I think, uh, takes the cake. And not only because of his uh, resistance to the uh, irresistible uh, Wiley X-rated Wiley Coyote plot, but also because uh, the uh, the League of Deaths was had uh, apparently so many assassinations that they had to that you mentioned that they're they just refer to them by date of assassination attempt. Yeah, do you know I absolutely love as well the fact that um, he's that not fucking scared of them. But he goes back there on holiday again. That's how scared Jolly Chaplin is of the idea of being off by these morons. Right, Clive and Holmes, are you ready? Yep. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. Well, they, the criteria I set was to listen to who people were voting for, and whoever had voted for my one would have won it. But no one did, so it's very, very tight. It's a very, very tough decision to make now. There were some... I mean, 
just about, all of them were excellent. And it was, it, this is probably the most difficult one I've been to. There was none that fell way past the wayside. I loved King Brian, thought he was perfect. <laughs> and, um, but for me, just for the disguises, if nothing else, it's got to be the Etta boys. Because having, you know, the, ga the, the electricians, but the sculpture students, sheer genius. And it worked as well and got rid of a bastard. So it <laughs> must be a good thing. Holmes? No, the, the same for me. I mean, honourable mention. I, the, I feel a bit bad for Emma because she always comes on. And um, I always... <laughs> assassination in Rome is just... There must have been millions of them, to be honest. And they're all probably vaguely similar. I mean, no, I... That one's gonna, my, they're almost all stabbing. <laughs> I was going to say, that one may be unique because of the, the collapsible boat. But apart yeah. from that, there's probably Got a lot of others. Andrews was great, as was Kate's, but I'm, there are elements of that, whether, I'm not entirely sure whether they, whether they actually happened in the way that they've been described tonight. Um, <laughs> and then James, you know, you probably discovered the first of mass destruction there, but, um, but for everything in slapstick and surreality, I think it has to go to Bethany as well. Excellent. Well done, Beth. Thank you. Oh, we need a Spanish theme cocktail as well. Now, I'm going to get really pissed when I finally get around to designing all of these, aren't I? <laughs> we all are <laughs> yeah this is true actually guys thank you so much for coming on to debate uh, history's most stupid silly ridiculous assassination attempt uh, let's go a bit more noble next week I've decided we're going to do uh, history's greatest journey no existential journeys please it has to be a voyage or a walk or a ride or a train journey or a drive or something brilliant. um and no space so if any of you want to take part in that do let us know uh until then what are we doing tomorrow tomorrow oh it's it's my one talking about the som and then on sunday so so the som one will be you can listen to it if you want to actually get a handle on what the battle of the som was about other than a bloodthirsty mess um, and hear about it in com on in context with the rest of the first world war and what it was actually good for if anything unfortunately it was good for something um and i'll tell you all about it and then on sunday we are with the cast of nightfall so we have tom cullen ed stoppard julian ovenden and simon merrills uh talking about the series about the knights templar we had really good fun with them you'll find out why tom cullen is never ever 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 going to eat beef carpaccio again and what happens when you fall into seven foot of water wearing a full suit of armor as well uh, so there's some really good stuff on that so don't miss it Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.